This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And this combines two of our favorite themes, literary themes and historical ones. Paul Revere's Ride is a poem by an American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and it commemorates the actions of American patriot Paul Revere on April 18, 1775. Longfellow was inspired to write the poem after visiting the Old North Church in Boston and climbing its tower on April 5, 1860. He began writing the poem the very next day. It was published in the January 1861 issue of the Atlantic Monthly. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Then he said, good night, and with muffled oar silently rowed to the Charlestown shore. Just as the moon rose over the bay, where swinging wide at her moorings lay the Somerset, British man-of-war, a phantom ship with each mast and spar across the moon like a prison bar, and a huge black hulk that was magnified by its own reflection in the tide. Meanwhile, his friend, through alley and street, wanders and watches with eager ears, till in the silence around him, he hears the muster of men at the barrack door, the sound of arms and the tramp of feet, and the measured tread of the grenadiers marching down to their boats on the shore. Then he climbed the tower of the old north church by the wooden stairs with stealthy tread to the belfry chamber overhead and startled the pigeons from their perch on the somber rafters that round him made masses and moving shapes of shade. By the trembling ladder, steep and tall, to the highest window in the wall, where he paused to listen and looked down a moment on the roofs of the town and the moonlight flowing over all. Beneath, in the churchyard, lay the dead and their night encampment on the hill, wrapped in silence so deep and still that he could hear like a sentinel's tread the watchful night wind as it went creeping along from tent to tent and seeming to whisper, All is well. A moment only he feels the spell of the place and the hour and the secret dread of the lonely belfry and the dead. For suddenly all his thoughts are bent on a shadowy something far away where the river widens to meet the bay, a line of black that bends and floats on the rising tide like a bridge of boats. Meanwhile, impatient to mount and ride, booted and spurred with a heavy stride on the opposite shore, walked Paul Revere. 
Now he patted his horse's side, now gazed at the landscape far and near, then impetuous stamped the earth and turned and tightened his saddle girth. But mostly he watched with eager search the belfry tower of the old North Church as it rose above the graves on the hill, lonely and spectral and somber and still. And lo! As he looks on the belfry's height, a glimmer and then a gleam of light. He springs to the saddle, the bridle he turns, but lingers and gazes till full on his sight. A second lamp in the belfry burns. A hurry of hoofs in a village street, a shape in the moonlight, a bulk in the dark. And beneath from the pebbles in passing, a spark struck out by a steed flying fearless and fleet. That was all, and yet through the gloom and the light, the fate of a nation was riding that night. And the spark struck out by that steed in his flight kindled the land into flame with its heat. He has left the village and mounted the steep, and beneath him, tranquil and broad and deep, is the mystic meeting the ocean tides. And under the alders that skirt its edge, now soft on the sand, now loud on the ledge, is heard the tramp of his steed as he rides. It was twelve by the village clock when he crossed the bridge into Medford town. He heard the crowing of the cock and the barking of the farmer's dog and felt the damp of the river fog that rises after the sun goes down. It was one by the village clock when he galloped into Lexington. He saw the gilded weathercock swim in the moonlight as he passed and the meeting house windows, blank and bare, gaze at him with a spectral glare as if they already stood aghast at the bloody work they would look upon. It was two by the village clock when he came to the bridge in Concord town. He heard the bleating of the flock and the twitter of birds among the trees and felt the breath of the morning breeze blowing over the meadows brown. And one was safe and asleep in his bed. Who at the bridge would be first to fall? Who that day would be lying dead, pierced by a British musket ball? You know the rest. In the books you have read how the British regulars fired and fled, how the farmers gave them ball for ball from behind each fence and farmyard wall, chasing the redcoats down the lane, then crossing the fields to emerge again under the trees at the turn of the road and only pausing to fire and load. So through the night rode Paul Revere. And so through the night went his cry of alarm to every Middlesex village and farm, a cry of defiance and not of fear, a voice in the darkness, a knock at the door, and a word that shall echo forevermore. For born on the night wind of the past, through all our history to the last, in the hour of darkness and peril and need, the people will waken and listen to hear the hurrying hoofbeats of that steed and the midnight message of Paul Revere. And what a reading, and what a story, folks. Longfellow visits the Old North Church, climbs its tower, and out this comes the next day. Gets in the Atlantic Monthly, January 1861. Still as relevant today as ever this story, reminding us how it all started. This is Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories, and we love telling stories of redemption, stories to give you hope amidst your own daily struggles and the noise that's out there each and every day in the news. And now our own Joey Cortez brings us one of these stories, the story of John and Ashley Marsh. I was on a trail and a track that I couldn't get off of. I was just in this, I felt I was in a tug of war and I was the rope. This pain and suffering just got so great, I started fantasizing about killing myself. So I figured out where you got this old house with this huge attic fan. I'm gonna pull the attic fan out, set up a huge pulley up in the attic, set up where I could have it, where I knew it wouldn't break. And I got it all set up where I could hang myself out of that hole. Our ceiling eyes were 14 foot, so I'll never hit the floor. It's gonna work. And I went up there to hang myself and had no reservations. John was born in Albany, Georgia, to parents that were 14 and 17 years old. He was put up for adoption and taken in by an incredibly loving family. As a kid, he made good grades and listened to his parents until... I rebelled. You know, rebellion's interesting. It takes you further than you want to go and costs you more than you want to pay. And so um, I stepped across the line and slept with a little girl. I was 13, she was 12 rode my bicycle to her house, and changed our life. Now, in hindsight, I was longing for acceptance. I was looking to matter, to be valuable. Two things I found pretty quickly, you didn't have to guess whether you were accepted or not, and that was with girls. And then right after that, about 14 years old, I started working and making money. And those two things, when you were accepted, you knew it. So I started a high-end car audio business. I was mentored for a year, and then 16 years old, I was making $1,000 a week after school doing high-end audio. And uh, I stepped across the line and tried drugs for the first time, and then I proceeded to go with that and be a drug addict for probably the next however many years of my life, five, seven years of my life. It's something I realize now looking back on rebellion, when you have rules and regulations without a relationship, it always equals rebellion. And so my parents loved me, but they didn't know how to reach me. I left home by 17 years old as soon as I could graduate, and I barely graduated. I was no longer interested. I was interested in making money. I said, why should I listen to y'all? I make more than you do teaching. I said, this is, I don't get it. You don't get the world y'all are trying to put me in. I didn't want to take and come into my dad's business. I wanted to do my own thing. And so I moved um, to Atlanta for just a short period of time doing high-end audio, helping them launch a shop there, and then ended up in a place called Auburn, Alabama, working for a guy named Big Jimmy at Jimmy's Car Stereo. He was a big old blonde haired blue-eyed Jew that loved me, and we became quick friends. He said, you're going to make more money than you ever made in your whole life. It's going to be awesome. I said, well, I like the sound of that. So I come here. First year I was here, I made almost $100,000 in cash as an 18-year-old boy, you know. He didn't like the girl, though, that moved here. That was my girlfriend at the time and moved here. I grew up in Pepperell, Alabama. I grew up in a very simple life. Um, looking back now into it, I would say in a, a poor family. I grew up in a very hard home. I had a lot of different types of conflicts in my home from alcoholism to abuse. And first job was at KFC, and then I started working at different places in the mall. So I bought a car that uh, my first car I bought for myself. I was so proud of it. It didn't have any music, and I love music. I've always either got music in my ears, it's playing in the house, it's always in my car. It's my one thing. I'd rather have a radio than an air conditioner. I don't care. And so I just love to feel the beat and the rhythm, and I love to move. And so anyway, here I am in my car, my first car, no radio. And he's like, I oh, take it to Big Jimmy, he'll take care of you. 
He's like, okay. So we get down there, and um, John is who Jimmy calls up front and um, to check out my speakers, because he says they're just not connected. And John's like, you don't have any speakers. She has no speakers, Jimmy. So Jimmy's like, okay, I'm gonna get her some speakers. Gets John to install it. I remember the first time I saw her, I, I really did. It's some of those things, you know, in life where and I, I thought she was beautiful. But I, I, I recognized something more than beauty. I told her, I said, first time I ever saw you, there was a royalty and a class about you that you were like a queen without the crown. There was something so special and so unique. And I said, I saw it the very first time I saw you. Jimmy is like, you know what? I like you and I think you're a smart girl. I want you to come work for me. This is part of his plan. So he decided this girl is no more for John, but this one's the one. So he's like, you know, matchmaker in heaven going on. And so anyhow, I start working for him. And the next thing you know, he has me and John doing everything together. And I'm just, I think he's just the most amazing thing I'd ever met. You know, he wasn't from here, thank goodness, because all the dudes from here are just idiots, um, is what I thought. And he was like James Dean to me. A little bit rebellious, which turned out to be a lot rebellious. Drove a Jeep, you know, just all the things. He just had the looks and the act and everything else about him. So I was gaga over him. But he had a girlfriend, and she was not too keen, obviously, on other girls being around. So Jimmy finally tells me, I don't like this girl that he's with, but I like you. And I was like, well, that's all good and great, but um, he has a girlfriend, and I don't date guys with girlfriends. And he's like, um, well, so you don't think you can get them? I was like, oh, no, I know I can get them. That's not a problem. And he's like, well, I bet you $500 you can't. So I took his bet, I won his bet, and I got the guy. So that's where we left off was Jimmy matchmaking us. <laughs> so she, we said, are. She, said you, she said, you're on fat man. I said, you're on fat man. We start dating. I, I, of course, I don't want to be alone much because I'm not that good of taking care of myself. I, I needed someone because I'm a bit like an indie car. Lots of maintenance required, heavy team, and lots of people to keep all the support systems going because these cars are expensive and they break down a lot, but they're high performance. So I felt like that's the way I, I was when it came to it. So Ash came into our life and um, we began to live together. We were dating for a couple of years and then this guy came into the car stereo shop and he'd bring in these cars that had been wrecked that he was repairing and the wiring wouldn't work right on him. He'd like, can you fix this? Like, oh yeah, no problem, I'd fix it. Pretty soon I'm fixing quite a few of these. He's like, oh man, me and you need to do something together. So he's getting wrecked cars fixed up in North Alabama, taking them and getting the metal work, the framework and body work done, sending them down here, we get them painted and then I'd put them back together and make them work. And we're making eight, $10,000 a car doing this. We're starting going, man, we ought to be doing more of this stuff. And so, and it really felt like the first time I'd really left somebody I loved deep. I told Jimmy, I said, I want to go out on my own and do this. It was really heartbreaking because he was, he was super close to me and loved me and a great mentor. And so we went out and um, started, I started my first business in the automobile business. I think I was 20 years old when we started this business. And, um, and Ash and I living together, her dad really hated me, really hated me. His daughter comes in there at 18, says, I'm moving out, I'm moving in with this guy. And uh, she had never rebelled. She had listened to everything her parents had told her to do and done everything they said all the way up until then. And so she moved in with us. And so m quite a few nights, her mama calls, say, he's on the way. Y'all watch out. He's drunk and he's got his shotgun. So he'd come and tap on all the windows of the apartment so that we would uh, 
know that he was serious about it. So he did not want her living with me, did not want us together, which made it a little more volatile. When I moved into the apartment with him, my life changed completely. I did find out that he was doing drugs. None of us are who we peacock ourselves to be. The moments of sitting and listening to Kenny G and looking into my eyes and you're the most important thing in the world and was true only until I moved in. I didn't know how to love a lady and that's one of the things I've realized is it's not intuitive. I mean, you've got more preparation to get a license or learner's permit for your car than to get married. <laughs> and so when we came into this relationship together, I began to immediately dominate her instead of love her and tell her what I wasn't gonna do and who she couldn't be. And, and she was trapped again. And so um, within a short period of time of us living together, looking back now, I realized she was trapped. I just said, I gotta move forward. And I, and I said, I, I love this girl. I'm gonna marry her and we're gonna keep moving forward. And I was in business, we were running two or three businesses that time by, by 21 years old. I was a million and a half dollars in debt, $99,000 overdrawn. I was a drug addict. We were running multiple businesses and we were in serious trouble. And you're listening to the story of John and Ashley Marsh. And do any of the characters sound familiar? Because if they don't, you haven't lived much of a life. When we come back, we're going to continue with their remarkable story. And if you have stories like it, folks, we love just basic relationship stories. We want them warts and all. We want the raw, real story. We don't do fake relationship stories here on this show. And you can send those stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More of John and Ashley Marsh's story here on Our American Stories. Hey all, this is Joey Cortez, a producer of Our American Stories. As always, we'd like to thank you for listening to the show. It's you, our listeners, that make this show possible. From the donations to the stories, without you, we wouldn't be here today. Thanks again for listening to the show. More of Our American Stories after the break. continue here with Our American Stories, and we left off with Ashley discovering that John was a drug addict and in serious debt, and the two obviously were not getting along. But despite the turmoil, the two got married. Let's return to the story. Ash and I find out we're pregnant, but there's just so many problems, and and so I've got a partner. I'm in this business. We're in lots of debt. I'm doing the work myself because I'm gifted with my hands. He's running the money. He comes to me one day and he said, I got to tell you something, Ash has been running around on you for a while. She's seeing one of our employees. tactic, But I felt like, well, my whole life fell apart. Everything I ever wanted, he can't trust it. And I said, okay, I know what you do. You get a new wife, you get a new life, get a new vehicle, reboot. Get the best lawyer you can and fight started going to lawyers, were setting up the things, and Ash and I are fighting. I'm doing all I can to try to find a way to win. 
to hurt her and win. The pressure was incredible. And I started hearing something in my mind and it kept going, why don't you kill yourself? Why don't you kill yourself? Why don't you kill yourself? And it became louder and louder and louder. I felt I was in a tug of war and I was the rope. And this pain and suffering of this just got so great, I started fantasizing about killing myself. So I figured out where you got this old house with this huge attic fan. I'm gonna pull the attic fan out, set up a huge pulley up in the attic, and set up where I could have it, where I knew it wouldn't break. And I got it all set up where I could hang myself out of that hole. Our ceiling eyes were 14 foot, so it'll never hit the floor. It's gonna work. And I went up there to hang myself and had no reservations. But I got down on that old plywood floor and started crying out to God I'd never met before. And the, the, it got reframed. Instead of kill myself, he said, why don't you die to yourself? Now it was so similar yet so different. And there was light and life in that. And I cried out to a God I never knew. Like lightning struck me, every hair on my body stood up. Time stood still. And for about two solid hours, every care, hurt, pain, suffering, regret, mistake I'd made, like a syringe, got pushed out of the bottom of my feet to the top of my head and out in tears. And I said, this is what I always wanted. This is what I've always been looking for right here. Nothing has ever filled me like this. Nothing's ever felt like this. I told myself, follow you all the days of my life, no matter what. You have me without any conditions. And so it began the journey of me beginning to find out what God had for me. And I didn't quit drugs, they quit me. Mm -hmm. I walked out of that place forever changed. Got struck by lightning. I was still seeing the gentleman that I had committed adultery with and found out that I was pregnant. And I didn't know if I was pregnant with John's child or his child. And that's what broke me. Not finding out I was pregnant, but I ended up losing the child. And at that moment was when I had nothing left. There, there was nothing left. I had no more ideas, no more solutions, no more energy, nothing to try to figure out life for myself or why I wanted to be in it or anything else. I never thought about suicide. I just felt so desperately alone. By the skin of their teeth, John and Ash evaded divorce. They met a few mentors that taught them how to love and how to be loved, how to forgive and how to heal. And so their life together began anew. One of our mentors that we met selling a car to, that started a relationship. He actually counseled us. He's like, you got to get out of living in the basement of this house. You know, you've got to fix upstairs. You've got, you know, this is something that's important. This is your home. We lived in the basement of our house for six and a half years in a one-bedroom apartment. That's what he's talking about, all cramped in there. It was me, John, Nelson, our oldest, a dog, and a friend. It took us a while to work on that house, and it was in the middle of that same neighborhood that had all the prostitutes and the drug addicts and just destitution, no hope. I mean, when you looked around, um, every house was broken. Everything looked abandoned, and so ours fit in the neighborhood up until we worked on it, and then we turned the lights on, and the next thing you know, we were like a beacon in the neighborhood. But it honestly was just a reflection, literally, of what was happening in us. And so we were working together, um, trying to work on that house and everything. That's when he transitioned from going from doing the cars and everything. He's like, I really like this. And we got through that. I was like, what do you want to do? He's like, I like this. I like doing this. So we started doing houses and we did two things. We're renovating houses there in our town. And then I got this idea. Ash fell in love with a house in Albany. She said, baby, it's a beautiful house I'd love to buy. And so I started thinking, I said, what if I unbuilt it backwards? 
What if I just disassembled it, took the last thing they put in, took that out, and just unbuilt it backwards? So that's the first house we ever disassembled. We took it apart in 90 days, driving 120 miles one way after work, and unbuilt it backward to the boards. We put our $3,300 tax return in that baby, sold it and made $15,000. That's what we rolled into doing everything we did. I started our architectural salvage business. Next thing you know, we're doing houses like crazy. She would do the design work, I'd run the crews, and next thing you know, we had done 75 houses in that one neighborhood with no money. Our guys started saying, well, John, you need to keep some of this, because if not, why don't you keep, do 10 houses for others, keep one for yourself. Well, next thing I know, we got a pile of property going. And then I got, we got to come up with a rental business. So we're running a construction business, architectural salvage, and a rental business. And we almost finished everything in our neighborhood over there. We've done like 70 or so houses, and I was like, well, what are we going to do next? She's like, well, downtown Oblaka was super junky. In fact, right before we started buying our first houses down there, two ladies were executed by a gang member downtown Opelika. It was just, it was broken. She said, I can't walk by this one more time and see it this way. we got to do something. I said, well, let's buy the whole place. She's like, we ain't got any money. I said, it doesn't matter. If it's something we're supposed to do, the provision's gonna be there. Provision is down the road. We just gotta keep stepping. I only need enough caulk and paint for today. If I got enough for today, tomorrow's gonna be there. So now, looking back, we've done 210 structures in 10 blocks, and we've helped start over 40 businesses to the saving of our city. And see, God loves cities. It was his idea from the start. I think God invented cities, but we're interested in seeing them redeemed. There's restoration and redemption for cities, just like people. And what we began to realize is we don't just make structures, structures make us. One thing I learned about cities, number one is the biggest mistake, we believe if we fix the buildings, it would save our city. And it doesn't. Renovation is not revitalization, it's just renovation. And you can fix the stuff up and it'd be dead inside. It's like a movie set. People and businesses add the life to buildings. And we learn one of the first things we always do is start with food, because so much meaningful happens at the table. You decide who to marry, where to bury, what's gonna happen. Very few things are incarnate. You don't stick a lot inside your body. Food matters. And good food people will drive for. I can get people to drive the worst part of the neighborhood for good barbecue. And so we'll start with food and fellowship. And we can build one iconic, amazing food place in a town and transform a town. People start coming from an hour away. One little town we're working in has 3,500 people, and the first restaurant we worked on there sees 8,800 people a month. So it's drawing people from all around. Mm -hmm. So our work now for Ash and I is to consult, help people who want to change cities, who share our same vision and values. We think there will be a time to come that people are going to recognize that historic downtowns in this fabric are irreplaceable real estate when they're under professional management, thoughtful vision, and a team that has a collaborated approach to where they're going that just does good and does well. And can you do both? Yes, except no less than to do good and do well. We've got a vision for saving cities. And we've been listening to John and Ashley Marsh, and what a story this is. I felt I was in a tug of war, and I was the rope. That's how it started. He was looking to kill himself, and his wife, well, she was at the end of her rope, too. But then something happened. He said he cried out to a God he never knew. And boy, did he get a reply. And ultimately, he said, I didn't quit drugs, they quit me. 
And they went about restoring not only their lives, but the lives of the people around them by restoring houses. But again, a house without a restoration of the people inside it is not much. Doing good and being provided for well, doing good and doing well, it's possible. And changing your life and turning it around, turning around a bad marriage. We like to tell these stories because it's possible if you're in the middle of a tough one now. Well, seek help and spiritual counseling helps. Any kind of counseling helps, but my goodness, so often our problems are spiritual problems. And we don't shy away from them here on this show. John and Ashley Marsh's story, a remarkable renovation story, here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories, and it's time for our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries. More than 67,000 people across America are employed by Coke, and there's a good chance that their work intersects with your own story in some way. And the great folks at Coke make products that help improve medical devices, consumer electronics, vehicle safety, fabrics for clothing, filtration for clean water, and innovations for popular household brands. In the process, they're creating jobs and opening paths to opportunity for everyone to create their own American story. Learn more about Coke's incredible work at CokeIndustries.com. That's Coke, K-O-C-H, Industries.com. And today, Robbie brings us the story of Manny Singh. I was born and brought up in India. Even though I used to live in one of the more advanced cities in India, still... uh, there were some basic issues which sometimes can be taken for granted in the U.S., but over there we were taking shower and suddenly the water would run off. It's just like a common problem. We used to fill buckets of water before they would turn it off and have like a six or eight or ten hour gap where there was no water available. Normally they would start at uh, maybe eight till about eleven in the morning and then it would shut off and then uh, come back in the evening for a few hours but that changed so much from week to week. And I faced those problems as I was growing up. And as I said, that's in the developed part of India. If you go to villages and some other remote areas, it was a lot worse. There were no toilets, and people used to travel long distance with their buckets on their head and bring those back. Everything was impacted because of water-related problems. Even now, 65 to 70% of India's wastewater isn't treated. Wastewater is when we flush our toilets or wash and our sink, all the stuff, everything gets collected. That's the municipal wastewater and goes into a central place where it's treated. The other wastewater is from all the industries. And if the wastewater is not treated, all we are doing is passing on the problem to the drinking water because now it's contaminating the surface water bodies which makes treating that incoming water more challenging. In 1995, Manny moved his family from India to North America. After studying and working in Toronto, he eventually settled down in the United States. Initially, it was driven by a better education. I think uh, in U.S. and Canada, the quality of education is much better. And after that, ability to make a difference is much more in the Western part, I would say, 
the resources that are available to do top-level research. If you look at number of new ideas that are being created, the number of new patents that are being filed, proportionally, it's a much more in the developed countries just because more resources are available. On the very first day when I joined work, I came in a suit and a tie and my supervisor said, we are going to do research on wastewater treatment. Uh, let's go to one of the wastewater plants. And there uh, we were doing a pilot study which required filling up a pilot with buckets of uh, wastewater. So I saw the engineers taking the buckets and getting their hands dirty and filling the pilot. And these are nasty wastewater stuff. And I was here in a suit and tie, and obviously I also jumped and took my tie off and uh, took those buckets and started filling a pilot tank with wastewater. So that was a first day, sh I, would, I shouldn't say shock, but realization that it's, it's a slightly different environment. Uh, if I was back in India, the chances are there would be like five people there sitting and uh, waiting and they will do all this work. But the fact that I got my hands dirty made me grow in a much better way. In 2011, Manny joined Coke Membrane Systems, where he now serves as the president. So in order to put in perspective the magnitude of problems we have, kind of I want to share two examples. One of them is the fact that there are more cell phones than number of toilets in the world right now. If you think about that for a minute and how the priorities can sometimes be misaligned. And the impact of that is kind of in the second fact, which is every two minutes or so, a child dies because of water-related issues. Coke Membrane's vision is a filtration for a better future. And we develop membrane-based solutions to address water and wastewater problems. The membrane is like a sophisticated filter. Think about a hollow straw with millions of holes in it, and each hole is like a thousand times smaller than a human hair. And that's what membrane is. So it's a, such a small, tiny holes, and that allows a clean water to go through, but keeps all the nasty stuff away because the holes are so small, so nothing passes through. Brazil had a pretty serious water shortage. There was no rainfall, lowering the level of reservoirs there, and those levels were like at about 10% of what their normal level was. So it was a very, very challenging situation. It's a very congested area, so there's not a lot of room for expanding the water or wastewater treatment plants. So whatever technology had to be implemented to solve this problem, it had to be compact, it had to fit in the existing footprint that they have, so we put a system there where we took the existing wastewater treatment plant and retrofitted that with membrane systems. So by doing that, that particular site was able to get five to six times more flow without expanding their footprint. If in a conventional system they can treat a million gallons per day, the chances are if you put a membrane system there, then the same footprint can treat anywhere between, let's say, four to 10 times the flow rate of, which is like four to 10 million gallons per day now, instead of one million gallons per day. We also provide membrane solutions for wine filtration, beer filtration, and juice, and a number of other industries. If you open up your fridge and take orange juice, there's a high likelihood that that orange juice was filtered using Coke membranes. 
juice which has pulp, it has to have a consistent amount of pulp. So what they would normally do is take membranes, filter it, that either that's a pulp-free juice, which is the filtered using membranes, or if it has to have a certain amount of pulp, they will mix pulp with that filtered juice so that it's very consistent. I don't think uh, anybody wants to drink too much pulp on one day and the next day they open and then it's a little pulp. So that quality control consistency is required and membranes help to give that consistent clean pulp which can either be shipped as is or it can be blended with controlled pulp. There's a lot of projects and a lot of success using membranes to make fine wine. Beer filtration is the next one coming up. How do we get beer quality to go up? How do you maintain the foam on top of the beer? How long does the foam last? It's, it's pretty amazing. What is the value to customer when they are looking at these products, which we kind of sometimes take granted. We just drink beer. We don't really think about what goes behind that. How long does the foam last on the beer? Is it five seconds or is it seven seconds? How can we develop membranes which does not remove the components which are helping the quality of beer and which removes the component which is hurting the quality of beer. It was pretty interesting when I joined Coke, uh, I had a certain mindset. In my first six months or so, we were developing a new technology and I was talking to David Coke at that time and I thought that I want some investment to make two or three pilots and each pilot can be like a hundred thousand dollar machine. And I went to David and said, hey, I want uh, this three, four hundred thousand dollars to build this pilot so we can test this new technology at these places. And right away, like within two minutes, he said, no, we should be building ten pilots. And uh, it was a complete opposite discussion. Normally, I would expect I go and justify why I need this money and provide all the background calculations. But here it was opposite. And I was trying to say, hey, do we really need ten? But that was the mindset shift, which uh, I think is how can we do things quickly? How can we invest more in the money so we can generate that value that we are trying to create as quickly as possible? Being a private company does allow us certain, I guess, benefits where we are not held by short-term expectations of our shareholders. So in a public company, every quarter, somebody has to go out and tell how much money did they make and a lot of decisions that are made can be influenced by that share price or whatever the expectations are from the shareholders. But as a private company, I think that's the one big value I found after joining Coke, that everything that we were doing was focused on creating long-term value for our customers. Coke invests 90% of its earnings back into business. Uh, I find it really motivating and I think sometimes that can be misunderstood uh, on what we do at Coke. I really believe that we have to have passion in everything that we do. This is what drives me to work every day. It's something that keeps me motivated. I've got two sons and when I go home and tell them what we do, we are solving a real problem in the world. We are creating value which is very easy to understand and that kind of drives me and motivates me to keep going. And great job on that piece, Robbie. And you were listening to Manny Singh, president of Coke Membrane Systems. And you heard it from him, the passion there in everything we do. And so many people who work for private companies in this country, well, we're in the same exact position. 
We want to add value. We want to do things well and deliver value and service uh, to our customers. How can we do things quickly and generate value quickly are the animating questions on Manny Singh's mind. Foam on beer, pulp consistency, treated water around the world, things that we take for granted. Our Opportunity America series, sponsored by Coke Industries, Manny Singh's story, here on Our American Story. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. They're some of our favorites. And now we have up next an American Dreamer's story. They're some of our favorites, and always they're brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And now here's Alex to tell us the story. Aaron Marquez was born in the border town of Chihuahua, Mexico. My mom and dad are, are rather young. They just turned 55 and 56. And I just turned 38 a couple weeks ago. So you can, you know, they got married pretty, pretty young. When they were 14 and 15, I, I can't even imagine what being married at that age, what that will be like. My dad worked in the United States most of my childhood. And mom had two jobs. You know, she'll work in a, in a local factory sewing Levi's. Mom worked there in the morning, and she'll come and pick us up from school, and fed us, and then went back to work and worked a double shift. And she did that for as long as I could remember. And my grandmother would come and babysit us until mom got back from work, and that's what she did every day. Growing up, my mom was such an incredible figure for us, and it was very motivating to me to see my mom, you know, work two jobs and, and have four kids and I mean it was very it was very difficult. And I would always tell her, I said, Mom, you know, when I grow up you're not gonna have to work, Mom. You're not gonna have to work, I promise you that. And my mom would always just grab my cheek and and uh, she's like, I know you will. And I, I said, but work, there's nothing wrong with working hard, is what she would always tell me. There's nothing wrong with working hard. But whenever you see your parents do that, the stuff that they sacrifice, it makes you appreciate the little things in life, you know, that kind of shape the way you look at things. So I always had that in the back of my mind, that how hard my mom worked, and my dad would work all over the United States, uh, doing construction in the oil field. And so I never got a chance to really see him. He really wasn't that involved during my, my childhood. Uh, and he would come in once a month, once every couple months, and then go back to the United States. So one thing that I see is you're you show what was shown to you. And my dad, his, my grandparents from my dad's side of the family, they were really not that loving and caring and there for them either. That my dad comes from a large family. What he showed me was what he knew. So I, I don't hold that whatsoever against him. I do think about it a lot, especially now that I see him with, with my nieces and nephews and they go to other soccer games and all the basketball games and volleyball games. My mom and dad are involved with every aspect of my nieces and nephews. 
Because I would tell, I always tell mom and dad jokingly, I say, hey, when I played sports growing up, you never came to any of my games. Not one. I said, and I was good. I was good. I was, I, was, I was the all-star, and you never came to any of my games. Well, we only had one car, which dad took to work. Mom didn't have a car. I always had to get carpooled wherever we went because we didn't have a car. So I wish you would have, you know, um, I wish you would have um, been involved in, in more. But we, we all had a conversation as a family and they decided to, to move to the United States. It was never explained to me like a level of opportunity. It was more of us being together because dad missed out on so much. And when I was in the second or third grade, that's when all the uh, conversations began. And honestly, that's something that, that I didn't want. But we never traveled anywhere. We never went to camp. We never did anything. We literally just, we were just there, went to school. Summertime was no different because mom worked every day and dad was in the United States working. So I didn't know any better, but what I knew is that I was comfortable where we were. This was of course before Facebook, Instagram, social media, where we really opened up how big the world is. Back then, I didn't know anything. I knew I went to school, we played soccer, we played basketball, baseball, and then for lunch, there was no lunch. I mean, there was no cafeteria, there was no nothing. If you had money, you ate, and if you didn't, you played soccer. And sometimes, I played soccer more than I ate, and so I kind of had a routine that I was comfortable with, and I didn't want to move. The only thing that I that I did not like is mom having you know multiple jobs. And back then, I, I resonated that. So whenever dad was and mom were talking about moving to the U.S. and, and things like that, I was like, I asked mom, I said, "Well, you're gonna have to have two jobs, or you're gonna have to have two jobs, mom." And, and she's like, "No, no, I'm not gonna have, I'm not gonna be able to work only part time because of our visas." And so at, at that point, I'm like, okay, if mom doesn't have to work two jobs, I don't care what it is, we'll adjust to it. Dad applied for a residentship for the whole family. Even before that, they had applied several years back, and the whole immigration process, I mean, kind of like, like the way it is now, it's, it's not very efficient. So it took a while for us to even get a, some type of correspondence back from the immigration saying that we reviewed your application and everything. So we're finally able to get a temporary visa to come to the U.S. We moved to the U.S. when I was 11. So you can imagine how at that age trying to adjust, not speaking English. We didn't have a home. You know, my dad was, was making enough money to kind of keep everything going and my mom as well. But we didn't have much money to really do anything. So we moved in with my aunt and uncle. There were six of us, and we were sharing basically a room and a half in this house. And you know, we were we came in into Odessa, Texas. We were there two days, and we left to Cayonosa, which is a town that everyone picks onions, and and that's how they get paid. They pick you up at three o'clock in the morning, and they would charge us to pick us up and, and bring us back. And you work there till about 7 p.m. at night, and you do it every day. It doesn't matter whether it's Monday, Sunday, you do that every day. And you're listening to the voice of Aaron Marquez. And this is a part of our American Dreamers story. And we've done so many remarkable stories from Mexican immigrants who come here, become citizens, and my goodness, do remarkable things with their life. And we love to celebrate immigrant success stories. The country is built on them. When we come back, more with Aaron Marquez and his story. And again, 
your immigrant stories, your ancestors, who were they? How did they come here? Both sides of my family, Lebanese and Italian, right through Ellis Island. And I know everything about that trip because they took the time to tell me. If you have stories, immigrant stories, you'd like to share with us your heritage, where your people were from, what they went through to come here, share them at OurAmericanStories.com. Aaron Marquez's story continues. Our American Dreamers segment continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Mexican immigrant Aaron Marquez's story of picking onions all summer long as an 11-year-old. And we return with asking Aaron if he had any free time of his own. No. Zero. We work 12, 14 hours and you, you're exhausted because the heat's so bad. I mean, it's 110, 112 degrees constant on your back. So my dad was able to find a, um, one of those pop-up trailers, the, the small ones. That's where we lived in the summer. My mom and dad and my brother, that's where we worked out of. And you know, my aunt and uncle would take care of my, my sisters and during the week and we'll go in there in and out. But we worked all summer picking onions. You know, as an 11th, 11 year old, um, I kind of had different ideas of what I would be doing with my time. But we needed to do that in order for us to save money to buy a house. Every time that we would do that, I would think of my mom leaving the house early and then coming and feeding us and then going back to work. And that motivated me more. And they're like, okay, if mom did this, I'm gonna do it. And I'm gonna, and I'm gonna be good at it. Growing up, I wanted so many different things. Most materialistic things, like a, an average, you know, 10, 11 year old will want. And I remember wanting this bike. And I would tell mom, hey mom, I worked out summer, can I get a bike? And she would say, well, we can't because we're going to we're saving money to buy a house. And I said, like, Mom, I, I worked all summer. Um, can I get a bike? And she's like, no, we, we can't. So we'll get you one whenever we can. And, and, uh, and I, I understood. But she would always tell me, you know, um, you're going to realize that how much your family and being healthy is the most important thing in life. And the materialistic things are going to go away. Love from your family and health is, is the most important thing that you'll ever see. At least we have our health. You have a great family that loves you, and that's the most important thing. And I would, I would always tell mom, I don't want health, mom, I want a bike. And she's like, no, you understand. Having health in your family is, is all you need. Let's focus on the big things, and let's get a house, and then we'll slowly we'll work on everything, and we'll get you a bike. So I was like, okay. So. We picked um, onions all summer. The back of my neck was peeling so bad. It was terrible because it gets so hot in the summer, 110 degrees, and I can't eat onions. I can't even look at onions right now, as you can imagine, just because of the smell. And I'm, I'm pretty fair-skinned, so I would peel so bad. And I remember just telling mom and dad, I said, I, I don't want to do this again, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work hard where we don't have to do this. We left on a Saturday, and school started on Monday. And they gave us, you know, $100 to go buy some back-to-school clothes, which I thought it was great. 
And I remember seeing the first pair of polo boots. I was like, oh man, he's like, I want those. And I asked how much they were. They were like 140 something dollars. I was like, geez, I got a hundred bucks. There's nothing I can, I can even get close to that. But I was like, I'm gonna work hard to get those. I knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted to go look at them. I was like, maybe they're on sale or, or something. Um, I wanted those boots. So we go get dropped off at the mall in Odessa. My brother goes one way and I go another way. And my brother goes and he um, buys all this clothes from JCPenney's and Bell's and these old stores that are no longer really in business or relevant. But he had all this stuff that he bought. And I go to Dillard's and I went and put boots on layaway. That's the first time I ever heard of the term layaway. But yeah, so if you give me $100, you still owe $45 and you have 60 days to get them out of there. So I went back and met my brother at the food court and my brother asked me, hey, where's your... Um, Where's your stuff? I said, my brother's name's Freddie. I said, Freddie, I'm, I actually put the boots on layaway. I'm gonna come get them out. You bought all this stuff with $100? So I'm like, yeah, and I have enough money for us to go get some food. Oh man, my mom and dad are gonna really gonna be upset with you. And we walked over to the food court. My brother had money to buy me a hot dog or, or something. I don't know what it was. So I walked out of the store with nothing and my brother had all this clothes to go back to school and, and I did it. Uh, and I got in trouble when, when I got picked up. You can't be thinking like that. You can't be thinking like that. You, you're, things like that are not gonna happen overnight. You gotta grow into things like that. They were very disappointed in me for doing that. And looking back, I would do it the same way because I didn't wanna settle. I didn't wanna settle for this is what you can do now. This is, I, I, wanna, I wanna be motivated. I'm not, and I tell all of our team or different you know, businesses that I'm involved in, I said, hey, you can accomplish a whole lot more than what's in front of you. You know, people are going to tell you what you can do and can't do. I said, no one knows you more than you, and no one can stop you other than you. Just focus on what you're doing. So in my mind, I had that, and I always go back to that. That, no, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to do that. I'm going to come back and, and, I, and figure out how I'm going to make another $45, because I know I couldn't ask my parents for it, on how to get this. And that's when I really started looking at different options of how I can make money. I saw a lawnmower that was for sale. My brother's really good with, even today, he's incredible. He can fix anything, he can build anything. He's an incredible person. But I bought a cheap lawnmower that he gave me money for, and he fixed it for me. And I started mowing yards um, around the neighborhood asking people, and it was difficult at first because I did not speak English. So I would knock on the door, and if somebody that didn't speak English answered the door, I, I just pointed out my lawnmower and said, $10. Some of the people were so nice, uh, they was like, okay. And then when I'll go charge, they'll come and point at me where all the different spots that I left that didn't look good. So I had to go back and mow, remow some of the yards and, and everything, but they were all very, very kind. But I quickly realized that, that I, wasn't, I wasn't very good at it. I used to cut grass myself and challenged Aaron, how can someone not be good at cutting grass? I mean, come on, it's not that hard. I, I didn't want to be good at it. That was the that was the point. I was like, I don't want to be a good grass mower because then I'm gonna like it. No, I, honestly, I was just I was trying to be quick and, and I would always just leave strips of grass and and my lawnmower too. I'm gonna blame it more on the lawnmower than me. Um, my lawnmower was not very good and I didn't have a bag on it, so the grass that I mowed just kind of ended up like right where I cut. So that I was they didn't give me the right visibility of realizing if I missed a spot because there's grass kind of going everywhere. 
That's my excuse, man. I'm sticking to it. That's when I really approached my brother and some of his friends about, hey, I'm going to go walk around the neighborhood and ask people to mow their yards, and then I'm going to pay you $5. And if you mow them, you know, you keep five and I keep five. If it's a big yard, I'll get 15. I get eight, you get seven. How about those splits? It might not seem so fair, <laughs> given the guys cutting. We're doing most of the work. But they hated asking people. And, and if they don't ask, there's nothing to cut. So that's kind of the way I looked at it. And it worked out well for them because I would line up, you know, 10, 12 yards on a weekend and they'll come in and make good money and I made good money. And I did that for a couple summers and I was able to get my polo boots out in a couple weeks. And I was very pleased with what I did. I was like, okay, I figured out what needed to be done to do this. And so it was very, it was very humbling trying to look back and, and see what I can do you know, to make money and especially with the language barriers. I remember going to school on the first day and we were in Odessa, in South Odessa, and we had to go to school in the north side of Odessa because that was the only school that had ESL, English uh, Second Language. So we would ride the bus. The bus would pick us up at 5.30 in the morning and class would start at 8.45 and we would literally just get there to make the class on time. Because the bus had to make so, much, so many stops and I was like, geez, where am I? I remember they taking me to, um, to class for the first time and everybody in there only spoke Spanish. The teacher spoke Spanish. The books that I received, they were written in Spanish. We were segregated in our own group we didn't go to PE with the rest of the school. Our lunchtime was different. I mean, it was just, it was very isolated and very, I hate to use the word, but it was very like segregated, I guess. We were not involved with all the regular activities and I didn't like that. And so I told the teacher, I said, hey, I wanna, I wanna be in a regular class. One, because I wanna play soccer. And like in two, I, I speak Spanish, I read Spanish. I, I wanna learn to speak English. I wanna. I want to do everything in English, and I'm not going to learn, no offense, but I'm not going to learn how to speak English when you're teaching me everything in Spanish. And everything that I'm reading is in Spanish. So this is, um, this is not going to work for me. This is not going to work for me. And what a remarkable insight from a young man that he won't learn English when he's always speaking Spanish. And my goodness, I just love the line, if I don't ask, there's nothing to cut. And so we learned the word enterprise, and we talk a lot about free enterprise on this show, but it's the word enterprise that matters. Freedom matters too, but the enterprising nature of this young man, he wanted those polo boots, and he wasn't going to settle. And he was teaching a lot of people around him about important things in life, particularly about the desire to improve one's life and station in life. When we come back, more of Aaron Marquez's story, a terrific American dreamer's story, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and with Mexican immigrant Aaron Marquez's story of being put in an English as a second language class that actually wasn't teaching English. And Aaron told his teacher that, that it wasn't good as far as he was concerned. Let's return to Aaron 
and hear what happened next. And she, she told me, I remember vividly, she said, this is your first day. This is your first day, so I don't know how you're drawing those conclusions, and this is not for you, it's not for you to decide, it's for your parents to decide. And I just, I just politely asked, I said, well, how different is this gonna be tomorrow and the next day? I got back to their house around seven. It was the, the bus travel was brutal because we changed buses three different times to go to the north side, to the, from the north side of Odessa to the south side of Odessa. And I told mom, I said, mom, I can't do this. I'm not gonna learn to speak English with, you know, in this ASL class. I said, you need to put me in the regular classes. That's, that's what I prefer and that's what I want. Mom's like, if that's what you want, that's what we'll do. And mom went over there and, and it's like, put them in regular classes. And that's when life began for me in school and education and, and meeting new friends. And, and that's, where, that's where I wanted to be because I, I was part of the group and I never want to be isolated and I never want to be looked upon like inferior to anyone. I want to just throw me in the middle of the group and if I, if I fit in, great. If I don't, I don't. But I don't want to get any special type of privileges or, or any type of anything. I, I don't want that. I want to be judged based on me, my merit, my character, my abilities. That's what I want. I don't want to be isolated as an ESL group or, or this. So I remember going to class for the first time and really not knowing much at all other than how to say my name and I loved it. I, I, I loved it. I, uh, I was never embarrassed of not speaking English. I would tell all my cousins, all my friends and everyone, hey, talk to me only in English. I don't, I don't want you to talk to me in Spanish. Talk to me only in English. That's what I would tell them. And that's why I was able, able to learn to speak English quickly compared to anyone else because everyone was speaking to me in, in English. And, and, and that's the way you have to do it. I often tell people you're not going to grow from being in your comfort zone. When you take out of the comfort zone, you're going to grow. That's when the growth begins. Of course, at that age, there's kids that they'll make fun of you for, for not speaking English, for not wearing name brand clothing or things like that. I remember being picked on for, I was reading out of the book. It was my turn to read it in class and I pronounced the word Iceland instead of island. Yeah, everyone started laughing. Then one of the kids next to me, when we went to break, he's like, Iceland, he kept calling me Iceland. And, <clears throat> kid, and he was laughing at me for not speaking English. And I was like, I told him, I said, man, you're laughing at me because I can't speak English but I'm learning to speak two languages. I said, I speak Spanish and I'm learning to speak English. I said, I'm gonna learn to speak English in the next three or four months. I said, and you'll still, and you'll still only be able to speak one. I said, imagine if you try to read Spanish. Imagine if you try to speak Spanish. I said, so I don't understand. I think that the joke's on you, that you're making fun of me if we're trying to learn to speak two, two languages when you're speaking, when you can only speak one. I'm not gonna make fun of you for that. And that changed everything. He never, never said anything again, and no one else did. And no one laughed. I remember no one laughed. Everyone kind of just processed that. They're like, that's so true. And I think he felt bad with my answer, and I wasn't trying to be, you know, condescending at all. But, you know, I just kind of snapped at that but with that answer. And it's just literally what rolled out of the, the tip of my tongue. 
I felt like if I, if I, and I still believe that, if, if you let other people kind of get, get under your skin or take you away from your focus, they're winning. So I always took a lot of the things like that as a lessons in, in life. You know, you're never going to get criticized for people that are doing more than you are. A lot of times the criticism comes from people who do less. And then my aunt and uncles, they, like they would use me in the summertime to go interview with them. You know, I remember my uncle um, had a job interview and he came and picked me up and said, hey, I want you to go to this interview with me because don't, I don't speak English. And I was like, okay. So he picked me up and we went over there and, and he just taps me on the shoulder. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, this is my uncle. He has an interview today at 9.30 or 10 o'clock or whatever. And he's like, okay. Um, and who are you? I said, well, that's my, I'm, I'm, that's my, I'm his nephew. And he's like, okay, does your uncle speak English? I'm like, no, man. And my English was not very good back then either. And I went in there at the job interview with him and they were asking him, you know, what he, he was an insulator insulating pipe and everything and he's he was telling him like oh tell him that I've been doing this for 10 years and tell him tell him that I can do this and this and there's some words that I didn't know how to translate so there I didn't really have anyone that was really successful in the immediate family that that I knew at all everyone kind of worked and knew what they could provide for their family but no one was no one ever mentioned college no one ever mentioned starting their own business no one mentioned anything it was just you're here, you work, and you provide for your family, and that's what you're used to. Seeing that, I didn't want that. I wanted, I wanted something completely different. I wanted, I wanted more than that. And it made me work harder to be able to you know, execute being an entrepreneur, being out of my own, and, because I didn't, want to, I didn't want to work for anyone else. So as graduation in high school became, was more near, I started really panicking about, hey, what am I going to do? And, I was really in high school, I wasn't that, that good of a student. I was, I was voted best dressed, most handsome, nothing to do with, with accomplishment. They had a, uh, a joke on, on our yearbook about most likely not to succeed, and I was, that was me in our class because I was a class clown. Anyway, it was just, it was interesting seeing all that. But whenever I graduated high school, I started working for a refinery, Huntsman Polymers, and then going to school at night at Odessa College. So I will, I will leave at 8 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the morning, come back at 6.45, and then class will start at 7.30 and finish at 10.30, Monday through Thursday. So I wanted to do that just so I can at least save some money and, and then look at a four-year school. Did that for a year, working in the plant as a laborer, cleaning tanks and being inside of tanks and very, very dirty type job. It was a labor job. Uh, but within six months, I worked for a company called J.E. Merritt. They're at that Huntsman Refinery. And I got promoted as a leadman. And I was making you know, $18, $19 an hour as an 18-year-old, which at that point was more than what my dad was making. So I, was, I had my group of eight men that I, that I led. And they'll assign us different projects, you know, cleaning tanks, cleaning just the dirtiest jobs that you could. But I, at that point, I was no longer, I was no longer doing it physically. I was just leading my team as a leadman, it was great. Every, every job that they'll give us, you know, they'll give you a, a, a job order and they said, Aaron, here's your job order for your team and you get five hours to finish it. And then here's another one, you get four hours to finish it. I focused on doing it faster, safer, cleaner than any of the other leadmen. And you're listening to Aaron Marquez. And my goodness, 
I think we should all sit down and take a seminar from him about so many different things. But he talked about this important moment in his life when he took himself out of those ESL classes and he came back into what we call mainstream, and that is coming back with the kids who speak English. That's when life began for me, he said. I never want to be isolated or seen as inferior to the main group. And I want to be thrown in the middle of things. I want to be judged on me and my abilities. And my goodness, in the end, he said, talk to me only in English. This is what he told his cousins and his nephews. By the way, it's what my grandparents did with their children. It was only English. No Lebanese was spoken to my parents, no Italian. English and English only. And my goodness, you're not going to grow in your comfort zone. A beautiful line. And if you let other people get under your skin or lose your focus, they're winning. This guy's got a book in him already. Aaron Marquez's story, a great American dreamer's story, continues here on Our American Stories. we continue with our American stories and with the final portion of Aaron Marquez's remarkable life's journey. Let's return to Aaron. I always try to find a way that would that we can do things that show that, hey, I'm going above and beyond what's expected. And we finished some of those jobs that were supposed to take a week. We'll finish it in a day and a half. And people started taking notice of that. And within a year, I got promoted again. And what was great is that the people where I was getting promoted, they were very receptive. They're like, hey, you, you want more out of life than, than this. And I was a young kid, man, um, leading these guys have been there a while. And I earned their respect because I always, I always worked hard and smart. And, but I was doing that also going through school, going to school at night. And they will see me at lunch when everybody will eat lunch and talk and play dominoes in the break room. I would be in there with my book wide open doing homework because that's the only time that I had. So they would see, they would see that. And I would, I mean, I was taking, you know, 18 hours of school. So it was very, it was difficult to, to do that, but nothing worth having is easy. And it was important for me to get a degree. And this Mexican immigrant who'd been in West Texas and put himself in a whole other type of environment, Connecticut, to get that degree from UConn. And Aaron then worked at the energy company Neighbors, getting promoted six times in the next five years. I received a $22,000, $23,000 bonus my first year. And what I did was I paid for everyone in my family to become American citizens. I'd never seen that much money made out to my name uh, on one check. I was like, wow, this, uh, this is amazing that you can get this much money. There's nothing that I wanted more than have the security of my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters to be American citizens. I think the United States of America is the greatest country in the world because it's the only country that, as an immigrant, you can accomplish whatever you, you set your mind to. It's a blessing to be an American citizen, and I held that paramount among anything else. And that's probably the best gift that I could have given my parents, everyone in my family, and to date, that's something that I'm the most proud of, is being able to 
make sure that my parents and everyone in my family, they were all of us are American citizens. And I asked Aaron what his naturalization ceremony was like. You know, to me, whenever you hear like the Star Spangled Banner or Amazing Grace, those two songs, no matter what, where I am, what I'm doing, if I hear those two songs, I just automatically want to cry, you know, and it just, the flag means so much to me and as an American and, and everything. So for the first time hearing that in your ceremony and they're playing that and among groups of so many different people from, from a different backgrounds, it's, uh, I, I remember just looking around and everyone in our family was just had tears coming down their eye because we felt that, man, we're, we're American citizens. How cool is that? It was one of those days that I would never forget because it, it changed our lives and, and it's changed our, the generation of, of our families uh, going forward to be an American citizen. And, uh, you know, it, it just motivated me so much to go back to work after that and, and accomplish more. So as I was going through neighbors, I was living good. I was making incredible money for what I'm used to. And I get a call from my mom. This was 2007. I get a call from my mom. She's crying. And that's never good. And there's, there's not, no worse phone calls than when somebody calls you and they're, they're not able to speak you know, on, the other, on the other line, especially when the other person on the other line is your mom. My mom's everything to me. And um, she's telling me, she, wouldn't, she couldn't speak, she's crying. And then now I'm like crying too, because asking mom what's wrong. And uh, she told me that dad was diagnosed with cancer, with colon cancer. And I was like, oh my God. I remember getting, getting in my car and driving over to Odessa because they were going to operate the next day. And as soon as she told me that, whenever the first thing that came to mind was her telling me growing up that you're going to realize that materialistic things are not going to matter, you know, or things that you want are not going to matter, what's gonna, what you're always going to value the most is your family and your health. Because at that point, I will be willing to give up every single thing that I have, that I had at that point, everything, and start all over if my dad was to be healthy. And, um, but I hated that, that it took um, something like that to happen in, in order for me to realize that. So, I mean, it's just, Looking back and even talking about it, it's um, it's difficult, you know. But um, that's why, like now, every time that mom says something, I don't, I don't wait for for it to for for it to uh, happen to me before I really take things to heart. I just remember that I was like, man, I'm willing to give away all every little the little bit that I have. I'll give all away if I can just give me if, if I can just have my dad healthy again. Luckily, everything went great, and my dad's in incredible health now. And uh, but it was one of those episodes in life that that I'll never forget. And his dad even went on to work with him on Aaron's dream of being an entrepreneur. At the time of our interview, Aaron's company, Wildcat Oil Tools, was only eight years old, and yet had over one hundred million dollars 
in annual revenue. Building different businesses and above all building great relationships and, and growing as a person. Being able to do projects in South America, in the Middle East, uh, in Kuwait, um, you know, Colombia, all over. Uh, it's been a blessing to do that. Uh, every time you travel to different parts of the world, which are incredible, the beauty of each, of each country, it's beautiful in its own way, but there's nothing better whenever you land in the United States of America, I'll tell you that much. I hope, I wish people didn't take that for granted sometimes, that how great this country is. You know, sometimes, you know, you, we get so caught up on what we're dealing with today and what we're focused on tomorrow, and we lose sight of how, we, how blessed we are to be living like the way we live and doing the things that we're doing and seeing the things that we see. And I said, I attribute a lot of that to my mom and dad. Just the, the work ethic that they had and the appreciation of the little bit that we have and, and really putting what's, what's most important, which is family, friends, faith. That's the most important. And uh, it's so hard for me not to get choked up about mom because she's, to me, the most incredible person in the world. And so everything that I do and everything that I strive to be is for my mom. Like, I want to make her proud, and, and she's, she's very proud of me. And I did a small podcast with a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago, and she called me, and she was just crying about it. Or she sees me in a, on social media through our tequila brand, and something else or uh, being on the board of a hospital or she reads things that make her proud and it's humbling to me because i i'm doing all these things for her for my family and going back to them getting married at such a young age you know i feel like we're gonna have a longer life together because they've you know they became grandparents so young with my brother and my other sisters and so it's a it's great uh, to be able to, you know, go to dinner and go travel and, and do things um, with them, and they're they're young. I mean, they're they're younger than than most people are who have a 40-year-old son and you know, 11 grandkids. And what a voice! What a story! Great job as always to Alex. And if ever there was a quintessential American dream story on this show, oh my goodness, this was it. Aaron Marquez's story is it. 19 years old, he's a lead man in the oil patch. And that's allowing him to make $18 an hour, as he put it, more than my dad was making. And then given a job order, well, he had one idea only. Do it better, do it cleaner, do it safer, and do it faster. Nothing worth having is easy, he said, and it's true. He went on to Yukon, of all places, got his degree, worked in the energy field, gets a $22,000 bonus, and what does he do with it? He makes sure his family members become American citizens. He says, to date, it's the thing I'm most proud of. And my goodness, he said, when I hear the Star Spangled Banner and Amazing Grace, both of those songs, I want to cry. And so many of us in this country do. The flag means so much to me. And my goodness, this country changed our lives. This country changed the trajectory of my family. He gets that call in 2007 where he learns that everything his mom told him about life was true, that he would do anything and give away anything for the health of his dad. And now running a business, Wildcat Oil Tools, $100 million annually in revenue. And my goodness, as he said, I'm building a business 
I'm building relationships. I'm growing as a person. What a story. Aaron Marquez's story. He lives in Midland, Texas, a patch of America that everyone should get to know, a beautiful part of this great country. Aaron Marquez's story here on Our American Stories. Hey, this is Monty Montgomery, producer for Our American Stories. If you have a story you'd like to submit about anything, go to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com.